or Revelation chapter 20. We'll read the first 10 verses. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain, and he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea, and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. So this morning we're just going to be looking at verses six, uh, 4 through 6. In our last uh, study in Revelation 20, we considered the meaning of the verses that teach that Satan has been bound a thousand years so that he is no longer able to deceive the nations. And we saw that that means that uh, Satan is restrained during most of the period between the first and second comings of Christ so that the gospel is able to spread around the world. While Satan is clearly still active in the world, the church has survived and spread around the world and it continues to do so. And so those first three verses of Revelation 20 are a great encouragement for the missionary calling of the church by binding Satan Jesus has, con- has created the conditions for the church to fulfill the Great Commission. And while there is a, still a great deal of wickedness and unbelief in the world, there is also the church. And it continues to spread and to grow around the world. And that's possible because Jesus has bound Satan to keep him from deceiving the nations. So this morning we continue working our way through this passage, and verses 4 through 6 describe what's going on in heaven during the same thousand-year period, which is described in verses 1 through 3. So 1 through 3 describe the binding of Satan, and 3 through 6 describe what it's like in heaven during the period, during the same period for believers who have died. Believers who have died and gone to heaven 
are sitting on thrones. They are sharing with Christ in his judgments and in his reign. And so this is one of the passages in the book of Revelation that gives us some insight into what believers who have died are doing while they are in heaven. And we'll look at what it says about that a little later on. First, we want to consider who these people are, how these verses describe them, the ones who are judging and reigning with Christ. So they're described in the second part of verse 4. I also saw the souls of those who had been been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. So this describes all believers who have died and have gone to heaven, having remained faithful to the Lord in this life. The text mentions the souls of those who had been beheaded and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image. And so that includes every faithful believer who has died, whether they've been martyred or, whether, or not. Not every believer is killed for their faith, but every believer does give his life for Christ in, during his life and remains faithful in the spiritual warfare that is the Christian life. And they're all included here. Now this verse, <clears throat> these verses use some unusual language to describe these believers who have died. Verses uh, 4 and 5 say first that they came to life, and then the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. So these statements are referring to all the people who die during the thousand years, which, as we have seen, is the period between the first, basically between the first and the second comings of Christ. So faithful believers came to life when they died. And the rest of the dead, so unbelievers, they did not come to life until... The thousand years were ended. Now we're going to look mostly at the first, at the believers. It's an amazing statement about the significance of physical death for believers. Physical death for believers is actually a coming to life. The biblical language, of course, concerning life and death deals with a lot more than physical death and physical life. The most important life in the Bible is spiritual life. And of course, they're all all related to one another. But unbelievers are spiritually dead even while they're physically alive. And believers, believers are alive when they are physically dead. So an unbeliever who dies is doubly dead. He's dead spiritually, he's dead physically, he will remain in that condition until the end of the age when he will be raised physically to face the judgment of God and hear the judgment of the second death, the judgment of eternal death. But a believer who dies physically is raised to a greater experience of life than he has known on this earth. So when a person is born again, when they first become a believer, they receive eternal life at that very moment. But when such a person dies, 
that life is so enhanced that Revelation here describes the death of the believer as a coming to life. While their bodies rest in the grave, the souls of believers are experiencing a fullness of life that is far beyond what they have experienced on earth. And that's what this verse is saying. And it should very much influence the way we think about death and the way we think about loved ones who have died in the Lord. This corresponds with what Paul wrote in Philippians 1.21 where he said, for, for me to die, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Our text is describing that gain. The verses that we are looking at give us a little more detail about it, what it means that for a believer to die is gain. So physical death for a believer is a coming to life. They enter into a greater experience of life than they have ever known on this earth. They experienced the beginning of it when they first believed in Christ and received life, but they enter into it much more fully when they leave their earthly bodies and their souls go to be with the Lord. This passage refers to that as the first resurrection. Now, the term resurrection usually refers to physical resurrection, but in this case, John is using it to refer to the coming to life of that believer's experience when they die. So the death of believers is being held up for us in a very, very positive light and is wonderfully paradoxical, at least on the surface, for a believer Death is a coming to life. For believers, physical death is the moment of the first resurrection. From the perspective of this verse, the death of a believer is a positive thing, an entrance into life. Now that raises an interesting question concerning how believers who are physically alive, us, should view this earthly life. If it's such a wonderful thing, for a believer to die, shouldn't we do all that we can to hasten that moment of our death? Why not commit suicide? Why not refuse medical care? Why not be in a rush to leave this life and get to heaven as soon as possible? Well, there's somewhat of a tension here too. There's no question that when believers die, they enter into a state of blessedness that is far greater than anything they experienced here. And yet, God created us to live this life on earth, physical life, is a precious gift of God. The sixth, the sixth commandment requires that we do what we can to guard and to preserve life, including our own. Proverbs 3, 1 and 2 <clears throat> connects wisdom with, quote, length of days and years of life. Jesus went around healing people. He didn't go around killing off believers so that they might quickly enter the joys of heaven, physical death is still a result of sin in the fall, so it is natural and right for, from a biblical perspective to want to live long lives and to do what we can to get better when we are sick. And yet, at the same time, death comes to all of us. Death remains sad because there's so much in this life that we legitimately enjoy. Losing loved ones 
is one of the greatest pains that we experience in this life. But there is great comfort in this perspective that when believers die, they come to life. Both of these things are true at the same time for believers in Jesus. This life is precious. Long life is a blessing. And yet at the same time, when we die, we enter into a fullness of life that is beyond anything we have known here. Believers desire to live long lives, but they also have times of desiring to be with the Lord, which is far better, as Paul did. And how often, how strong that desire is to be with the Lord depends on the strength of their love for Christ and many other things. But this perspective, then, is a great comfort for believers in the light of the reality of death. No matter how, hearth, how healthy we are, no matter how long we live, death will come to all of us unless the Lord returns first. We live in the shadow of death. What a comfort that the Bible speaks of what lies beyond death for believers in such positive terms. For death, for a believer, it, it's a coming to life. It's a first resurrection. No matter how good Life is for us now. It will be better when we die. One more thing I want to say about this, put it all into biblical perspective. Even though the Bible here and other places <clears throat> presents the, 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 the death of believers, the physical death of believers as a coming to life, even this is not the ultimate hope that the Bible holds out to us. The ultimate hope is not that believers' souls will be alive in heaven. The ultimate hope is that they will experience the resurrection of the body and live with God in the new heavens and the new earth. Life with God for the saints right now is good, the saints in heaven, but it's a temporary state of affairs. The fullness of salvation is not a soul living in heaven, but a resurrected human being living in the, the new heavens and the new earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and he created man physically to serve him in physical ways on a physical earth. At the end of time, that goal is going to be realized in a physical existence as part of a renewed creation. And that is the salvation that God is working towards. But in the meantime, the saints who die experience life more fully than they did while they were on earth. They are now looking forward to the final resurrection and the new heavens and the new earth. But in the meantime, they are not wishing they were back on earth, for they are experiencing a blessedness that is far greater than any earthly blessedness. And this passage gives us some idea of what they are up to. They're seated on thrones. They have been given authority to judge. They are reigning with Christ a thousand years. They are priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. So somehow the saints in heaven share... <clears throat> in Christ's work of judging the world, even now, before the final judgment. 
The authority to judge, the text says, was committed to them. Richard Phillips writes about that. The manner in which the saints exercise judgment is not specified, but at a minimum, they have the pleasure of approving and taking part with Christ in his judgment of sin. Now, it may be that one of the ways that the saints in heaven share in Christ's judgment is through their prayers. Back in Revelation 6, we're given a vision of the saints in heaven as well, and there they are praying, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And later on, Revelation 8, there's a direct connection made between the prayers of the saints and the judgment of God being poured out upon the earth. And that applies to our prayers now already, but it seems likely that part of the way that the saints in heaven exercise judgment is through their prayers for the coming of God's kingdom. The saints are also reigning with Christ during the thousand years, which is right now. So those who have died in the Lord are reigning with Christ. Now the idea of human beings reigning and sharing in God's reign, that goes all the way back to the beginning. uh, When God made human beings in his image and gave them dominion over the earth. Dominion is another word for reigning. God's purpose right from the beginning was that his people would serve and glorify him by exercising authority on his behalf. And that will certainly be the case in the new heavens and the new earth where we will fulfill God's intention for humanity in his, his intention in the original creation will be fulfilled, but in a more greater and more glorious ways. And from our text, we see that it's also the case that the souls in heaven, uh, for the souls in heaven of believers. We don't know what it looks like exactly, but on the basis of the analogy of how God works through people to accomplish much of his plan on earth, we can say that the saints in heaven are exercising authority and contributing in some way to the fulfillment of God's purposes of judgment and salvation. Very interesting to think about this. God does a lot of things through the agency of created beings. He uses human beings on earth, and he uses angels as well, both in, both in the spiritual realm and the earthly realm. He doesn't need to do that. He doesn't need humans. He doesn't need angels. God can accomplish whatever he wants to accomplish simply by speaking, as he did when he created the whole universe, and as he continues to do, as he upholds and governs the whole creation from moment to moment. And yet, he has set things up in such a way that he often uses human beings or angels 
in very significant ways to fulfill his purposes. And we can understand the judging and the reigning of the saints in heaven in the light of that, in the light of that, of the fact that that's the way God has chosen to work right from the beginning. There's very little detail here about what the glory, glorified saints in heaven are doing. We know that they're worshiping. We know that they're somehow involved with Jesus in reigning and in judging. We know that they're praying. <clears throat> and we know certainly from the book of Revelation how significant those prayers are and how they relate to Christ judging the world. Putting it all together, though, we conclude that they have an important role to play in heaven, exercising authority under and with Christ as he rules over the nations and as he brings the kingdom to its consummation. Somehow they are very much involved, just like on this earth, say, with the Great Commission, we are very much involved. One other thing that is mentioned about the glorified saints in heaven is that they are priests to God, of God, and of Christ. Priests in the Old Testament, they served in the temple. They were as close to the presence of God as it was possible to be in the Old Testament period. The saints in heaven serve as priests in the presence of God. So the significance of them being priests has to do both with with, um, being in the presence of God and offering sacrifices of praise and of service. Just think of of that in the light of Romans 12.1, where it says of believers now that we are to offer our bodies as living sacrifices to God. That's priestly language. And so the saints in heaven... They're doing that as well. They don't have bodies in heaven, but they're doing that with their souls. They're serving God as priests in his presence in a more glorious way because they are no longer sinful. They have access to the very presence of God. They serve in whatever ways they can do that as souls in heaven. Philip Richards again writes that the reference to the saints in heaven as priests of God and of Christ, quote, indicates that believers in heaven have immediate access to the presence of God and enjoy unimaginable blessing of perfect spiritual worship before the face of divine glory. And Revelation 7.15 gives a, a, a nice little description of this without actually using the word priest, but again, this is priestly language, priestly activity that is being mentioned. So Revelation 7.15 says of the saints in heaven, therefore they are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Now, these verses are clearly intended to encourage faithful followers of Jesus and to warn those who are not faithful followers of Jesus. 
God here is holding before <clears throat> before us the, the picture of the saints in glory. The book of Revelation has a lot to say about the persecution of the saints and the spiritual warfare that saints are engaged in. The Christian life is wonderful because we are right with God and we are beginning to live the blessed life of service to God. But the Bible is very clear that it's often hard, sometimes because of persecution, always because of the calling to die to self in the face of satanic opposition. And this passage is intended to be an encouragement for us in the struggles of the Christian life. But there's a warning aspect to it as well. The souls who are judging and reigning with Christ in heaven are described as those who stood fast in persecution and stood fast against the pressures of living in a godless society. They are described as those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not <clears throat> received its mark on their forehands or foreheads or on their hands. Now, as we saw in earlier sermons, the beast and the image, these are symbols of humanity and its opposition to God. The beast and its image for us is the godless society in which we are living with all its temptations to worship that which is not God. We saw, too, that the mark of the beast refers to the, the kind of worldliness that makes it possible to thrive economically in a godless society where faithfulness to God often requires embracing economic hardship. So the kind of people <clears throat> that end up judging and reigning with Christ when they die are those who have be, remained faithful to God in a world in which faithfulness to God means dying to self and accepting the cost of living the Christian life. Using some of the phrases from the letters to the seven churches, this means things like enduring, patiently enduring, being faithful unto death, not worshiping idols or practicing sexual immorality, conquering and keeping Christ's work until the end, keeping Christ's word and not denying his name. These are all different ways <clears throat> of speaking about being serious about living the Christian life, denying self to follow Christ, continuing to confess Christ before men, even when that results in mockery or scorn or economic hardship or even death. And so there is a call here in these verses for us to examine ourselves and our lives. What is written here is a great encouragement to those who fit the description of faithful believers, dying to Christ, not worshiping the beast. But that description is a warning for those who confess Christ but who are not serious about the life of sacrifice, obedience, and service, who are just drifting along with the world. But at the same time, as we consider that, examine our lives in the light of that, we have to remember that it's not talking about perfection. It doesn't mean sinlessness. Jesus lived and died and rose again so that sinners 
might be saved. Every saved person is a sinner saved by grace. Jesus does not snuff out the burning wick and, or break the bruised reed. So both of these things are true at the same time. Those who are truly saved will be serious about living the Christian life. Those who are truly saved are weak, far from what they ought to be, and they are trusting in Jesus for forgiveness and a right standing before God. Now this passage also has a warning in it for rank unbelievers, for those who just outright refuse to submit to God and accept his salvation. Verse 5 says, The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. So there's a contrast here between those who die in the Lord and those who die as unbelievers, as enemies of God. When believers die, they actually come to life, as we have seen. When unbelievers die, they do not come to life until the thousand year are ended. Unbelievers who, do not, who die in their sins do not participate in the blessedness that is described in these verses for believers. The text specifically says they did not come to life until the thousand years are ended. It also teaches that the second death has power over them. It says that the second death has no power over believers who die in the Lord. But a clear implication is that it does have power over those who die in their sins. And so when they die, they do not come to life until the thousand years are ended, and at that time they will experience the second death. And the second death is defined for us in Revelation, um, I think it's twenty-one fourteen. I said 10.14 here, that's not right. But anyway, death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. So the second death is hell. Eternal punishment in the lake of fire. The reality of hell is very, very sobering, but it is the clear teaching of the Word of God and it is part of the background to the good news of the gospel. Hell is what we all deserve. Hell is what we are saved from as followers of Jesus Christ. Unbelievers are warned of the reality of hell. They are exhorted to flee the wrath to come. Jesus is proclaimed as the one who suffered the wrath of God in our place so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. But the emphasis in these verses is on the positive. Here again, the words of verse 6. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Here is, this is written here for the comfort and the encouragement of the followers of Jesus Christ. These verses describe the current blessedness of those who have died in the Lord, and it describes what lies before us after this life if we are following Christ. Not a lot of detail given for the biblical description of the state of believers when they die, but there's enough to encourage us and to comfort us as we live this life in the here and now. 
we will sit on thrones. We will be given authority to judge. We will experience the fullness of life to a much greater degree. We will reign with Christ. We will be priests of God and of Christ. We will be blessed and holy, sharing in that first resurrection. So people of God, take heart. Life is rich and precious. It can also be difficult, and we all suffer to some extent. And before all of us is the end of this earthly life. As believers, the glory that awaits us puts this present life into the perspective, in the perspective of eternity. We live now knowing that the best is yet to come. Physical death is a reality that must be faced, but we face it knowing that Jesus has conquered death. And that after our physical death, we will enter into life in a way far beyond what we have known on this earth. And so let's live in the light of that hope. May it encourage us in the fight. May it help us to prioritize what really matters. And let us continue to follow Jesus, who for the hope, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. Let's pray. Our great and glorious God, our Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, our Savior, Jesus Christ, our Sanctifier, the Holy Spirit, we come before you and we, we worship you. We worship you as the God of heaven and earth. We worship you as the God of the kingdom, the one who is working to bring your kingdom to its consummation, to save your people, and to destroy all opposition, to render just judgment upon all men and to bring about the new heavens and the new earth. We thank you that you have saved us from our sins. We thank you for the hope that is set before us, for these insights into the glory of the saints who are right now with you in heaven. Lord, we pray that may be a great encouragement to us that we may examine our hearts and lives in the light of the way that this passage describes who are there, and that we may cling to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our hope and our salvation. And in his name we pray, amen.